It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 237 for April 10th, 2010, recorded on April 8th. Alien Skin Software has ministers of propaganda. Seriously. Or maybe not so seriously. And that is, seriously, one of the reasons that I like the company, because they're not so serious about themselves. Now they have a Wingnut division, too, or maybe it's a studio. And Wingnut has a product called Lo-Fi. At a time when every other photographic application is trying to help you improve your digital photographs, Lo-Fi wants to make them worse. And by making them worse, it improves them. Rather like destroying something to save it. You're confused now, or perhaps you think I am. Well, Winston Churchill called the Soviet Union a riddle wrapped up in an enigma. Hold that thought for a moment. Alien Skin Ministers of Propaganda Jeff Butterworth and Jimmy Beach say that Alien Skin created a studio named Wingnut within Alien Skin Software to produce fun little consumer products. Wingnut's first product is Lo-Fi, a standalone app for the Mac and Windows desktop. Lo-Fi adds funky toy camera effects, they say, to JPEG photos and can easily share them on Flickr or Facebook. Lo-Fi doesn't have the pro features of our plugins, they say, but it's perfect for regular folks who don't own Photoshop. Next time your friends bug you to jazz up their snapshots, just tell them to try Lo-Fi. Enigmatic? Yes. With an intro like that, though, I had to check it out. You can try Lo-Fi for yourself, for free, and when you decide you want to buy it, as you probably will, you'll be out just 30 bucks. Now, here are some important points. First, it's not a plug-in, so you don't need Photoshop or PaintShop Pro or anything else that uses plug-ins. It works only with JPEG images, so if you shoot fancy raw images, and you certainly should do that, you'll have to convert them to JPEG before you feed them to Lo-Fi. The interface is disgustingly simple. Any idiot could learn how to use it in less than three minutes. It took me only ten to master it. Lo-Fi doesn't do a lot of things, but how much would you expect for $30? And finally, it's more fun to use than you'd expect for something that costs less than dinner for two at a cheap restaurant. The user interface, as I mentioned, is different. As you can see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, it looks somewhat like the back of a digital camera. Because only three primary settings exist, this user interface works very well. There are icons that allow you to control the three primary settings, which are film type, mood, and frame. I started with a picture of Phoebe, she's a cat, sitting on a bed. On the website, you'll see the original JPEG. I tried several different film effects, and I decided I liked the one they call Oldachrome. Because Phoebe is the original glamour cat, the glamour mood seemed to be appropriate for her. And then for the frame, I selected Vignette. That's all there is to it. All I needed to do then was save the image. And when you do that, the application suggests adding Lo-Fi to the end of the file name so that you won't overwrite your original. So once you've done that, you have an image that you can easily upload to Facebook to share with your friends. Or you could upload it to Flickr. 
And because I joined the Lo-Fi Flickr group, any images that I upload to Flickr will automatically appear in that group, as well as in my own photo stream. Pretty cool, huh? So the bottom line for Lo-Fi, Lo-Fi isn't a full-featured photo editing application. It's just a way to have some fun with some of your images. It's not appropriate for every image, but even a $500 plug-in isn't appropriate for every image. The application is not about perfection. It's about fun. I can't give it a barrel of monkeys rating because I don't have any monkeys, but I could bestow a five-cat rating on it, and I think I'll do just that. For more information, visit the Alien Skin Lo-Fi website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. I find myself wondering how nervous local TV stations are about services such as Hulu. The networks are about to stage an end run around local broadcasters. Since the beginning of commercial television, the networks have had to convince local stations to give their programs what's called clearance. Most of the time, those local stations did that, but not always. And broadcast television has always been a real-time operation, until recently when digital video recorders made time-shifting easy. Now, there's Hulu. Hulu is a subscription service that offers free, ad-supported, on-demand streaming video of TV shows, movies, trailers, clips, and made-for-the-web videos. You might think this is an operation the networks would hate, but look who's behind Hulu. ABC, NBC, Fox, and several other networks and studios. You'll notice I didn't mention CBS. That's because CBS selected Netflix as its streaming video partner. Hulu videos are available only in the United States and its territories, and Hulu actually blocks many anonymous proxies just to make sure. Hulu uses the Flash video format and provides web syndication services for AOL, MSN, MySpace, Facebook, Yahoo, and Comcast's Fancast.com. Hulu's basic service provides standard definition programs for use on computers. A new Plus version offers high definition, and by high definition in this case, I mean 790p video. The basic service has the most recent five episodes of current programs and full season catalogs of hundreds of other programs. The Plus version has all current season episodes for 45 popular programs and every program from every season of 90 shows. Both regular and Plus services offer at least some episodes from hundreds of programs. The basic service is free. As I mentioned, it's ad-supported. The Plus version costs $8 a month. That's a lot less than any cable television service. The ads are short, but they are annoyingly frequent, at least in the TV clips, somewhat less so for the movies. You might wonder what's on. Well, Hulu has a huge movie library and a vast array of episodic TV shows. Many of the episodes are full-length, but some are just short clips. Although some of the content is from programs that are still on the air, You'll mainly find episodes from older shows that are no longer on television, and some of these go back to the 1960s. How annoying are the ads? Well, as I said, the ads are short, but frequent, and the production isn't particularly good. On television, there's always a fade to black before the commercial break. This is intentional. Hulu doesn't do that, and cutting directly to a commercial from a program can be disconcerting, to say the least. 
There is no such thing as free television, of course. If you don't pay with dollars, you pay by allowing the station, the network, or the service such as Hulu to rent your eyeballs to advertisers. So either pay or accept the ads. And how complicated is this? Well, Hulu is easy to use. Screenshots represent videos that are then grouped into columns. There is so much content that this can actually be overwhelming. But if you're looking for a specific show, you can search by name, or you can also look at an alphabetical list of all the shows in Hulu's library. When you find something to watch, you'll like the Hulu video player because it uses Flash to run inside your browser. If you have a second monitor, you can drag the video over there and keep working on your main monitor. This is far better than having to install a proprietary video player. The bottom line, if you are tired of your cable provider, maybe Hulu is the answer. Cable providers who also provide Internet service must be worried that subscribers will drop their $40 a month or more cable television service and start watching television using Hulu. That would not be an unreasonable fear. For more information, you can visit the Hulu website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Ever hear of war drivers? War drivers log and collect information about wireless access points that they find while driving. These could include wireless access points provided by municipalities and intended to be used by everyone, those provided by restaurants and coffee shops intended to be used by customers, or even those provided, sometimes unintentionally, by home users who don't bother to protect their systems. Now, war drivers aren't really a problem. They just find these systems and report them. Piggybackers, on the other hand, might be a problem. These are the folks who would prefer to use your Wi-Fi than to pay for their own. Well, my system is, of course, protected, and protected pretty well. But I thought I'd play with the minds of some war drivers or piggybackers in case there happened to be any driving through the neighborhood. I have to admit I borrowed this idea, but that doesn't make it any less amusing. Now, imagine a war driver or a piggybacker scanning the Wi-Fi SSIDs, and SSID means Service Set Identifier, and finding this one, FBI Surveillance 4267. Check the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll see what that looks like. I captured that image from my Kindle. Depending on the software they're using to sniff for signals, they might actually see that the SSID is locked, but they will see the name, FBI Surveillance 4267. Locked or not, would any piggybacker in his right mind try to connect to an SSID called FBI Surveillance? Well, maybe. Think about that for a moment. If the FBI is in your neighborhood with a surveillance unit that needs a Wi-Fi connection, do you really think that they would call that Wi-Fi connection FBI Surveillance 4267? Or do you think maybe they'd choose something like Linksys or Two Wire 231 or ABCS Secure? Those are all SSIDs that I can see from where I live. The FBI certainly doesn't announce its presence and would be likely to use a common name rather than FBI anything. If you're part of a surveillance team, your goal is to blend in. But, as I said, that doesn't make the joke any less funny if you're a geek with an odd sense of humor and access to the router. In short circuits, long, secure passwords are great, but they can be hard to remember. Once you've logged on to a system, it's easy to use an application such as KeePass, or as I'll explain next week, a service such as LastPass. But what about the logon ID? Writing the password on a paper that's stuck to the monitor is a bad idea. 
and cleverly hiding it on a sticky note that's stuck to the bottom of the keyboard, eh, forget it. That doesn't work very well either. There's a way around the problem. What if this sticky note hanging from your monitor said 1987 at sign? Or Chrysler exclamation point? Or pound sign Pitscat? Might observers think they've just discovered your password? Indeed they might. But instead of passwords, these words are triggers. They can safely be written and displayed in the clear because nobody but you knows what they mean. 1987 at sign could remind you to use the address where you lived in 1987 and follow it with the at symbol. So let's say you lived at 57 Elm Lane in Springfield, Illinois in 1987. Possible passwords could be 57ELM at sign, 57ELMLANE at sign, ELM57Lane at sign, 57ELMSpringfield at sign, Springfield57IL at sign, or any of several others. You'd need to remember only the address and the pattern. Chrysler exclamation point? Okay, that could be the address of the dealer where you bought your Chrysler automobile. Or it might be 405 Lexington exclamation point. Or Lex at sign 5th exclamation point. Or Lex at 5th Ave exclamation point. By the way, that's the location of the Chrysler building in New York City. How about Pitt's cat? Well, that could be the name of your favorite cat during the years you lived in Pittsburgh. If the cat's name was Phoebe, but you called her Feaselby, your password might be pound sign Feaselby or pound sign, lowercase feasel, uppercase b, lowercase e, e, or even alternating, upper and lowercase, pound sign, uppercase f, lowercase e, uppercase e, lowercase z, and so on. And by the way, I never lived at 57 Elm Lane. I never lived in Springfield, Illinois. I was living in 1987. I do know where the Chrysler building is in New York City, but I've never used it as a password. I do have a cat named Phoebe, but I never lived in Pittsburgh. So if you think any of those might be passwords I've used, uh-uh. Anyway, these are bits of information that are well known to you, but not to others. And that's what makes hiding them in plain sight so safe. This is the kind of story no editor would allow a mystery writer to include in a novel. An old woman in Georgia, that's the former Soviet Republic, not Jimmy Carter's home state, scavenging for copper to sell a scrap, stuck her spade into the ground and cut a fiber-optic cable. That immediately cut off most of Armenia and portions of Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan from the Internet. Oops. The 75-year-old woman was arrested, but then, because of her age, released. Nearly all of Armenia's Internet service goes through Georgia, and more than 3 million people were without Internet service for about 5 hours. The local media are calling the woman the Spade Hacker. Although police released her, the woman does face charges of damaging property and could go to prison for three years. Monitoring circuits immediately detected the problem and a security team found the woman still at the scene of the crime, or the dig, if you wish. There were no accomplices. Here we go again. Another big attack and a bunch of email addresses at risk, maybe. I've received several messages this week saying that my address might be in the hands of the bad guys. So what? My addresses receive hundreds of spams per day. If some bozo sends a few more, will I even notice? Here's the message from Chase Bank. 
Chase is letting our customers know that we have been informed by Epsilon, a vendor we use to send emails, that an unauthorized person outside Epsilon accessed files that include email addresses of some Chase customers, and so on and so forth. From Crucial Memory, on April 4th, we were informed by Epsilon, a company we use to send emails to our customers, that files containing the names and or email addresses of some Crucial customers, and so on and so forth. If you do any online banking or buy anything from online merchants, you may have received a similar message. This is certainly annoying, but hardly worth spending any time worrying about. Just keep in mind that we're still in the Wild West era of the Internet, and also keep in mind there will always be criminals, but security will continue to improve. Even so, it'll never, ever be perfect. Many companies use third parties to send messages for them. That's okay. They provide the bare minimum of information to these providers. Chase Bank, for example, would provide perhaps an email address and a name. No account information. And with just your name and your email address, about all a crook can do is send spam your way. That's easy enough to deal with. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.